Hello, hello, everybody. Here we are again, live on Broadcast Team Alpha, YouTube, 3TV station, 17 platforms, and we are here for some cutting-edge conversations of quantum possibilities. And my name is Auge, and my uh, co-host, Nori, is on vacation, a well-deserved one. I've been joking about this for years now, and I'm telling her that she's probably the second most busiest woman in the world, and they're still arguing about which is the number one. So I'm <laughs> hoping she's having a great time on her vacation. And uh, we have a phenomenal guest with us with a great story of intrigue. You're going to like it because there's both interesting things to listen to and solutions for many of you that have had some really strange experiences. But first, I want to tell you how you can connect with us. You can reach us at uh, broadcastteamalpha.com. And there is a place there where you can send us messages and questions and answers and whatever you like. And also, we're on YouTube with the same name, Broadcast Team Alpha. And you can check out our other shows on YouTube because there is some real doozies there. They're not just shows. There's also videos under the live stream as well as in the video section of uh, things that Nori and I have placed there. And uh, there's a lot of stuff there that you're not supposed to know about. So enjoy yourself. And uh, while you are on YouTube, also, um, please subscribe and click the bell so you get notifications when next time that there is a video or a show out there. And uh, if you like what you hear, it will be uh, wonderful to have you support us also on the Super Chat feature because that tells us that we are doing the right thing. And... Uh, Nori and I also created a spiritual think tank. It's called the Mastermind Connection. And we do incredible things. There are times when it seems like we create things out of seemingly nothing. Because we reach into the quantum outside of the physical and find it and bring it in and it materializes. We have done this many, many, many times. And uh, if you're interested in having a look at what we do and be uh, participating in something that is a little above ourselves, send us an email and I'll send you some information and a link so you can come and check it out. And uh, send the email to themastermindconnection at gmail.com. The Mastermind Connection at gmail.com. And uh, also, we have a membership on YouTube that um, you replace uh, special videos on there that uh, Nori and I is kind of, um, we are not ready to put them out in the general public, but uh, they are very personal things extremely personal things in there and very good education about things and also you have a little more direct access to us because we are doing uh, some meetings 
every month and uh, we are having one coming this Thursday. So watch my Facebook page and uh, and YouTube and you will uh, find out. So check if you want to be part of the membership group on YouTube, just go and click on join and then you can become a member and we'll get to talk privately in the uh, sessions. Anyway, I um, I want to invite the guest. We have John Yost with us. He, uh, his life is uh, his uh, <clears throat> his life is very interesting story. Some of it started when he was seven years old, and we're going to hear about that. When he went <clears throat> after that, he went to school and to college and had regular jobs and prestigious one at the U.S. Treasury, but he never got away from that experience he had at seven years old. And uh, because of that, he ended up making a video documentary. And uh, it's quite a production, actually. And uh, because of that, he also became a member of the um, National Arts Organizations, the Screen Actors Guild, American Radio and TV Artists, Actors Equity Association, and American Guild of Musical Artists. And for those of you out there, that's not something that you send in your 10 bucks and become a member of. No, that <laughs> is hard. It's really hard. You have to have excellent performance in what you do in order to make it into those organizations. And also, his alien contact experience, I prefer to call it an alien contact experience instead of an abduction, because abductions have such a negative connotation to it, but good things came out of this one, even though it wasn't all that much fun when it happened, but good things came out of it. So, uh, and uh, this experience has similarities with other people's experiences. And um, he will explain what happened, but there also will uh, be, we will talk about answers and solutions if something happened to you along these lines. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Augie. I, I really appreciate you, and I appreciate your audience. Thank you for your time tonight. Oh, it's going to be fun, actually. Yes, uh, sir. I guess it's always fun to talk about these things afterwards. <laughs> More fun so than when it happens. Mm. But how did it start out for you? You you were just a little kid when you first had your experience, and Walk us through that because I have listened to it and it was phenomenal. So talk yeah. us what happened to you at seven years old. Sure. <clears throat> I was um, I was living in my parents' home, of course, and uh, my bedroom was on the second floor. And it was uh, the month of August. It was very humid, very, very hot outside. My family was not very wealthy and we didn't have air conditioning in the home. And so the windows were open and uh, I awoke in the middle of the night, like two or three o'clock in the morning um, to this hum, this kind of drone, mm, mm, this sort of thing. And um, it disturbed me. It woke me up. 
and I'm a little kid and I'm tired and I want to sleep, <laughs> but it won't let me sleep. So I, I, I sit on the side of my bed, I rub the sleep from my eyes and I go to the, the bathroom. I'm in there for a while and I'm turning the water on. And, and at some point I turn the water off and I walk to the door. And as I open up the door, standing in the doorway, to my seven-year-old eyes was this character that I had seen a thousand times on television. There was a character in Japanese television called Ultraman. And Ultraman was this giant silver guy with kind of a round head and oval eyes. And he uh, had barely a little mouth, a little nose, and he fought the monsters, you know, and, and the monsters were kind of like, uh, you know, Godzilla type monsters. So I thought Ultraman was the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I was not afraid. I was not afraid. The interesting thing, though, about this Ultraman guy was Ultraman was always a giant. And this Ultraman in my house was as small as I was. And I was the smallest kid in my class until, you know, ninth grade. So this was a tiny little guy. And I we got very close. And I mean, nose to nose. And then something happened. Something strange happened. And it scared me. Um, the floor kind of dropped out from underneath me. And the way I described it to people is this. If you've ever stood on a beach and the water rolls up over your ankles and as it goes back out, it starts to pull the sand out from underneath your feet and you feel yourself kind of falling backwards. That's the way it felt. And um, I'm a little kid and I, I immediately go from, oh, this is great to I am petrified. I'm losing control, right? So I flail my arms, almost like a drowning man, you know, somebody in trouble in the water. And as I do, I literally lay hands on this character. This, this is not a vision. This is not a dream. I physically lay hands on this thing. And there's a tremendous flash of light. And there are all of these spinning lights, blue and green and yellow, magenta, past me very, very fast. And I feel disoriented. I think I'm moving, but I can't tell. And I am just becoming more and more terrified. At this point, I kind of come to my senses and I'm still in this struggle with this character. But something very odd has happened is now my back is in that hallway and his, this Ultraman character's back is in the bathroom. And I'm confused by this, but I'm still in the struggle. And I haul back to hit this guy or this thing. And as I do, he, I say he, I don't know, it was a he, raises his right hand and touches me on my left shoulder. And when they do, when it happens, there's this wave that hits me in the shoulder and the chest, almost like a if you're standing halfway into an ocean and you get hit in the chest by a wave, knocks me. So it knocks me backwards. Now behind me in this hallway is a set of stairwell, is a stairwell that goes to the first floor. And it's all hard wood. Well, I fall backwards uncontrolled. And I'm flying up and over and banging off walls and just, oh, just making a mess of it. I land in this heap at the bottom of the stairs. And I am screaming. I, I am screaming like murder. My parents have a first floor bedroom. And they hear the disturbance. They run out. And my father's a big man. And he says, you know, what the hell is going on here? And, and I'm sc screeching 
you know, Ultraman is upstairs, upstairs, my bedroom. I'm sure that he hears, okay, he, we have an intruder, right? So he runs upstairs. And my mother is trying to console me and quiet me at the bottom of these stairs. Well, my father's slamming doors upstairs. And at some point, he comes to the top of the stairwell. And he looks down and he looks, oh, he looks depressed or he looks disappointed or he looks disgusted in me. I've awakened him. And of course, there's nothing there, right? And um, so my parents take me upstairs and they do what parents do. They show you inside the closet. See, there's nothing there. They look in the, under the bed. See, there's nothing there. Well, okay. So they lay, they lay me down in, in the bed. And I think because of it being in the middle of the night, me being overtired, and then, of course, my body being flushed with all of these endorphins um, and adrenaline, I just passed out. I was wiped out. And um, so this is 1974. Okay? Today, you can't get kids, children off of a sofa. I want to play with their games. But in 1974, as you recall, you would come downstairs, grab a waffle, run outside and play all day. And that's what I did. I felt like I had been beaten up by a bully, but it wasn't top of mind. I'm a seven-year-old kid. There are other things to think about, games to play. And I played all day. My mother called me in for dinner. And as I mentioned earlier, it was very, very, very humid then. And um, she said, look, you are disgusting because <laughs> I've been outside all day. We're going to get a, a bath here before dinner. And I'm a little boy. I don't want to take a bath. And she's struggling with me, takes my shirt off. And she's looking at all of these bruises and cuts all over me, you know, from the fall. And she gets to my left shoulder. And she says, oh, my God, honey, what, what happened here? And I, I look around. I said, Mom, I told you, you know, Ultraman, right? And she looked, she looked very sad. And um, she gave me a little kiss on the forehead and said, it'll be all right. It'll be okay. A couple of days later, my father is taking me to the, uh, the doctor's office. And as we pull into the parking lot of the doctor's office, he says to me, now listen, we get in there. I don't want to hear anything about this Ultraman guy. You keep that stuff to yourself. Well, I mean, I adored my father. Of course, I'd obey him. And of course, I don't understand why this is important. I don't even know why I'm at the doctor's office. You know, whatever. Fine. Whatever you say, Dad. So we go inside, the doctor's examining me. And now at this point, this is a couple of days later, my bruises are healing. My cuts are healing, of course. But he gets to my shoulder and he says, oh, sport, what the heck happened here? And I just start to blurt out. Well, there was this guy. My dad is standing in the corner and he is giving me the look, right? <laughs> like, you didn't, like, didn't we talk about this, right? And, you we know, once again... <laughs> yeah, the look, you know. And today, you know, children are completely disrespectful. But back in the 70s, if your father gave you the look, you knew what the heck that meant. Shut your darn mouth. So I said, oh, oof. I fell. I was just playing. So in a few minutes later, the doctor gave me a lollipop and I was outside the door. My dad is taking me home. And as we pull into the driveway of my parents' home, he says again, but his voice has changed now. The timber is very low, and he's very emphatic. He says, now listen, I'm going to tell you something, son. 
I never, ever, ever want to hear about this Ultraman guy again. You shut your damn mouth about it. I don't want you talking about it. I don't want you scaring your sisters. I don't want you scaring your mother. You shut up about it. So now I'm, there's a compounded kind of emotional component here. Now I'm feeling afraid, even more so now, but from my father, who I adore. And I also feel like I've done something wrong. You know what I mean? Like it's somehow my fault. And as a little boy, you can't really digest that. And so I just, you know, compounded. And then I just started to lie. I wouldn't talk about it. I would obfuscate. I would change. And and throughout my life, it did change. I mean, you know, when I was a little kid, I lied about it because my dad told me to shut my damn mouth, right? But when I became a teenager and a young adult, you know, I, I was in sports and university and high school and Guys would see me in the shower room and say, hey, Yost, what the heck is that, you know, on your shoulder? And I made up, it was almost like muscle memory, Augie. It was like, so I said, oh, yeah, a shark bit me, or I got hit by lightning, or uh, somebody shot me. or what. But watch what happens. In three seconds, eight seconds, the complete conversation is diffused. No one gives me a follow-up question. They were like, ah, you're full of crap. And they let it go. And so I never, ever have to say, you know, to tell you the truth. I never have to do that. Yeah. And I live that way my entire life. I so I go on. Go ahead, please. Go ahead. Your question here, because your dad was so adamant about this. Do you think maybe or did he ever mention that him Oh, your mom may have had an experience like this because it very often follows families. Mm -hmm. um, that is a fantastic question. I never had a chance to ask him. Uh, both my parents have passed. Um, and he never talked about it again. And I never talked about it ever in his presence again. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I was ever asked about it, I just lied about it or made up some silly story. Um and I never did talk to my, my mother about it because, of course, my father's admonition, I didn't want to scare my mother, this sort of thing. Yep. But do I suspect now that I know what I know about everything that I know, I would have to tell you. Uh, if I was a betting man, I would say to you, absolutely, he had experiences. And I think what had happened was he felt out of control and also like he couldn't protect his children. And so that yep. was just too much for him to bear. And so he didn't want to talk about it. You know, yep. so I, th I think you're I think you're on that. Yeah, chances are that he had an experience and he talked about it and people made fun of him. So he didn't want the same thing to happen to you. Yeah, I believe that's around, true. Yeah, roundabout way. He was trying to protect you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Sure. So I, I just went on with my life and. Uh, um, Went to university, ended up working with some very large logistics companies in the world, uh, uh, LEP, Profit by Air, Schenker International, uh, Apag Lloyd, Maersk, and uh, ended up becoming a U.S. customs broker, um, one of the youngest on the East Coast, and traveled the world, lived in Germany for quite a while, and um, around you know New York, wherever, and did international business and transactions yeah. and that sort of thing. But after about 10 years, it kind of lost its flavor. You know, I was raising a family and I just said, you know, I, I don't know if this became a job, a J-O-B, and I wanted to do something with my life. So I thought, hey, you know, I always wanted to get into film and television. So that's what I did. 
And I have to tell you something. Everybody in my life, everybody, including my dear mother-in-law, <laughs> had a lot to say about that. Um, but I, I worked very, very hard and was successful. And what I mean by successful is I'm not a star. I'm nobody big. But I'm a guy who works all the time. You know what I mean? So that's success in our world. Um, so think of me like a blue-collar worker. But I work all the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so um, I've, I've made a lot of, I did a lot of stuff in front of camera. I did a lot of stuff behind camera, did a lot of writing and directing and producing. And uh, we were on a shoot. And this leads me to why we made the film. We, you and I were talking about this off air. Oh, no. um, yeah. Good so story. I'll tell you the story. Yeah. So it's, this story is not in the film. Well, what happened was this. I was just on a, a totally different shoot. I was in the middle of nowhere. I was in a place called Borrego Springs, California. And we were shooting this big shoot. And it was a night shoot. Um, and uh, we had a, a, a team of about 15, 17 people. We rented a very large home um, as our base of operation because, you know, out in the desert, you don't want to get loose. You don't want to lose anybody. So you herd the cats, if you will. And um, so we were out uh, late shooting. We came back in. Um, people were outside this house by a pool having a nightcap and I came out, they handed me a glass. We're going to make a toast. And as we, as I raise my glass, I'm facing the house, the pool's behind me. There's this glint of light in my glass. I thought that was odd. And I just said to you know, your mind tries to identify things. And so my mind said, ah, you know what that is? That's the moon. That's what that is. And then I went, wait a second. That's, that's not the moon. I'm the producer on this. I chose tonight because there was no moon. I wanted to control the light. That's not the moon. As I drop my glass, I see this thing that's above the house. It's about 30 feet in the air. I could have thrown a baseball and hit it. And it was blue green and it was self luminous and it kind of glowed and it was shining this way. And I thought, once again, my mind is saying, ah, what is it? Ah, you know what this is? This is a Mylar balloon, like a get well balloon or a happy birthday balloon. That's then my mind said, wait a second. That thing is as big as a Volkswagen. There is no way that that is a get well balloon. What is it? And just then I grabbed one of my camera guys who was right beside me. His name's Scotty. I turn him and I say, Scott, look. And he says, oh my. And when he does, everybody around the pool, but like I said, 15, 17 people, they turn and go, Hey, what's that? Oh my God, is that a UFO? I can't believe it. Oh, what's going on? This. Meanwhile, I am just gobsmacked. I cannot believe what I am seeing. And this thing moves like this fast. And it goes zip, 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 and it stops right above my head. And I don't know how long it was there. A second, minute, two minutes, I don't know. But what happened was this. I felt a feeling that I had not felt in 45 plus years, I felt that floor slipping out from underneath me, that sand going on. And I was immediately transported back. I could always tell you all the facts of what happened, but I had isolated myself from any of the emotional content of that evening by obfuscating and lying all these years. I was plunged back into that and I was petrified. So this thing above my head, zips away about 20 feet. People are still talking about it. And then it just slowly drifts off into the desert. Now it was easy because everything was flat. We watched it for like a minute and a half. 
anyway, people are still talking about, I can't believe, oh my God. And inside I'm dying. Augie, I make my, I make some stupid joke about having to get up early in the next morning and I make my way to my room and uh, I barricade the door. I push all of my luggage up against the door. I push my bed and I sit in a corner and I cry my eyes out. Now you have to understand at this point, this is several years ago. This is not a 50 plus year old guy dealing with something. This is a seven-year-old kid who never dealt with something. You never got closure. Never, never, never. Never processed it. Never digested it. And Mm -hmm. so um, in my kind of, in my role as a producer and a director, you have to be very anal retentive. You have to be very attentive to details. Everything is important. Everything has money attached to it. Checks and boxes and everything else. So you have to be in control of yourself. And I am not at this point in the story. I'm very upset. And I am upset with myself. And I'm so angry that I cannot control. I was so afraid. I have to tell you, it was like, have you ever been so cold or so sick or so afraid that your organs are shaking inside you? And um, so I, I have a very fitful night. And I'm angry and I don't get much sleep at all. But I'm going to take a hot shower and have that coffee and go out there and kick ass. That's what I'm going to do. And I go and have the coffee and I get the shower and I can't walk outside. I am petrified inexplicably about Big Sky. I can't get near that pool. I can't go outside. I'm petrified. This is a big problem for me. A huge problem for me. I have to go check out locations. I can't do them by myself. This is an embarrassment to me. I get home a couple of days later. Thank God for Irish whiskey. Because <laughs> uh, that's the only way I got home. Um, but I get home. And when I get off that plane, my friends and family, there's something, they know something's wrong with me. Yep. Something different. And it got so bad that I would get to the office very early or I would get there very late and wait for somebody to get there and get out of their car so I could run to them and walk into the building. This is embarrassing. Okay. I'm the guy in charge. (laughs) This is not a good look. And also now I'm no longer the smallest kid in my class. I'm about six foot three and 270 pounds. Mm -hmm. So, not many things scare me, right? But I am looking like a fool. And this is this is poisoning my life. It's poisoning my personal life. It's poisoning my business. And this is intolerable to me. So what I start to do is I realize, I say, listen, you, meaning me, myself, you are nobody important. You are nothing. I'm certain that other people have had experiences and they got over it or they deal with it. And you've got to find out how they did that. And I'm not proud of this, okay? In the beginning, today I'm a different person, but in the beginning, I really didn't give a damn what other people's experiences were. What I cared about was how they could go grocery shopping with this in their life. How could they pay bills? How could they live a normal life if this is in their life, intruding and, and reminding them that they're not in control? How can they do it? So that was my original quest. Now, my point of view has changed completely. Yeah. 
But what happened was I, I then I started to find people that would talk to me. Then I would start to record people. And I found out that many people had similar experiences to me, but many people had very, very different experiences to me. And that amazed me. And then I got to a point where I could share about what happened to me. And as I mentioned, I could remember all the details except one. And this bothered me. I could not for the life of me tell you how at the top of those stairs I got interpolated with this Ultraman guy. How did I get on the outside and him get on the inside? How did I fall down these stairs? And what did this mark me? What was this about? I could not tell you. And hell, that bothered me. And at this point now, my need to know is more than my need to protect myself. Mm -hmm. I was more curious than afraid. And so at this point, I mean, I'm just telling you what I did as a person, not as a filmmaker, not as an investigator, nothing. I'm just telling you as a person, John Yost, this is what I did. So at this point, I realize, so somebody says to me, listen, you got to meet this person named Debs Shakti. And she's in the film. And Deb Shakti is a quantum hypnotherapist. And I didn't know anything about that. I, frankly, I thought it was all woo-woo and blah, blah, blah. And she said that she could help me. And as I said, I'm kind of a big guy, and she's this little tiny person. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, all right, little lady, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. But she just said, she said, listen, John, you have spent an entire life building this emotional blister around yourself. It keeps everyone away. It protects you from anything. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to relax. And you will relax enough to walk down that hallway that you built. And you will open that door that you locked. And you will look inside that filing cabinet. And all you're going to do is you are going to observe and report. That's it. And we're just going to make sure that we have all the information for you. So at this point, I realized something, and, and you and I were talking about this off, off camera, is this. At this point, I'm starting to realize that this is much bigger than just me. Much, much bigger. And there's so, and, and then I realized, look, there's got to be a thousand people, a hundred billion, a million people just like me, who would have never breathed this to anyone. They've kept it deep inside. They've lied to themselves and everybody they know to save their job or their credibility or their fate or whatever. And I thought, you know what? Maybe if I ask the hard questions, maybe if I act the fool, maybe I can be their scaramouche. Mm -hmm. I will ask these things and they can sit in the safety of their living rooms. And if they can't take the truth, they can turn it off after 10 minutes or watch it in snippets or whatever. But maybe this can help them. And so I talked to Debs about this. And, and originally, she was against this. She said, now listen, we're not playing some carnival game. This is your life. This is your consciousness. This is your soul, kid. We're not you know, having some fun and games. But then I explained to her what my hope was, is that we could, we could maybe help some other people. She considered that. And I mean, she's one of these people, you've heard this term, um, Christ consciousness, somebody who just is so giving, so loving, just a service to others person. This is who this woman is. 
And so when she found out that I intended to use it to help people, she said, okay. But then, then she had all kinds of other rules. Yeah, there couldn't be other people in the room. There had to be remote cameras. I mean, thank God, you know, this is what I do for a living. I'm a filmmaker. I make TV shows and commercials. So we have all the toys, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, we did it and people couldn't be in the building. The actual session took six and a half hours. It was incredible. In the film, you get about, I want to say, 12 to 15 minutes because the film is not about me. It's about us. It's about you and me and us and us as a species. Um, But I just happen to be like kind of the framework that we take. And and so when I went through that experience, that quantum hypnosis, I learned a lot. And I learned that that was not Ultraman. And I learned they didn't take me on a ship. And I learned there were other guys there. And I learned a lot of stuff. And I'll be happy to talk to you about that. But but I wanted to make sure I answered your question about how this all got started and why I made the film. That's I know It's a long answer. I apologize. But that truly is the reason why and how. And I understand, uh, yeah, they didn't take you on the ship, but they took you underground. And they showed you a bunch of stuff. Talk just a little bit about that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, well, the first thing I found out, which was interesting to me, was that this had not been the first time they took me. They had been taking me since I was little, little, little boy. And this is why, in reality, when I was there at seven, I was fighting him. I did not want to go. That's why I was struggling with him. Um, the screen memory that I had of him being Ultraman and the world slipping away, this was, that's ancillary. I was fighting him because I was not going to go with him this time. And I recognized him. And he was not Ultraman. He was more like a, um, it was more insect-like, almost like a very large, dark brown ant. Had kind of, I don't want to say armor plating, but exoskeleton. And he had um, antennae that came out of his head and out of his cheeks. And these antennae were not, they were not, I don't want to say armor plated, they're not exoskeleton. They were more like tree branches or more like antlers on a deer. And they were truncated. And somehow he was able to use those to coerce me. There was some sort of energy or whatever trying to coerce me. And I was fighting him. And um, and so when he did take me, I don't know by what means, some sort of tech, some sort of um, consciousness tool, I do not know. But we descended into some subterranean area. And I could tell it was subterranean because I could smell the moisture in the air. I could taste the moisture in the air. And it was dank. And um, also I could see stalagmites and stalactites. And at the very top, this thing was massive. Augie, it was like if you've been into a stadium, um, a sports stadium, and I took you out into the middle and it was midnight and there was nobody there and we turned off all the lights, it felt that vast, that expansive. It was immense. And at the top, the apex of this kind of cone or, or, or lid or whatever, there was an opening, but it was irregular. It wasn't a perfect circle. 
and certain things were hanging down and there was a light source, but it was a light source that was off to the side. So it wasn't a spotlight that came down. It was, it was almost like if, if a full moon was over here and the light had spilled into a hole and, um, and I was there and there were, there were other entities there. There was the, the, the ant guy. And it, and it's hard because when you watch that regression, if you have a chance, it's hard for people to watch that because you, you don't see me. You don't see a 50 plus year old guy talking. You see a little kid struggling. Uh, and you hear things like, you know, I refer to that ant character as a bully, <laughs> you know, a little kid word, right? A bully. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was Go ahead. I got a thought in the middle of this. Yes, what sir. you are explaining is very, very close to what the, some Native Americans are talking about when they talk that we have contact with the ant people. Mm -hmm. some, somebody had mentioned that to me after the fact. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I, I do not know. I do not know. And I don't know anything about, I think they're, they're the Hopi or the Navajo. Yes. Um, yeah, um, I, I'm not familiar with that information, um, but I've I've heard of it. Mm -hmm. uh, the the other types of entities that were there were more along what you would assume a gray would look like, except except that their chins were not pointed; they were kind of elongated. Uh, and this is another one of those funny little things, you know. As a little boy, I recall having a nickname for them calling the horse faces or the horse heads yeah. because of their elongated chin. They didn't look like horses, but it was just that their faces were long. <clears throat> and, um, and what they did was they had me some sort of, I don't want to say restrained because I didn't feel straps on me, but I felt compelled to kind of lean back almost like in a, in a reclined position in a chair. And in front of me were these three ginormous screens, like 60 feet high, 30, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide, something like this. They were around me, three gigantic screens. And in these screens, something very interesting, there were all of these nonsensical pictures. It wasn't telling a specific story, all kinds of different pictures. And there were pictures within pictures within pictures. Uh, I've used this example before. I remember during the 80s and the 90s, you could walk into a mall or into a festival or something, and you'd see a picture of, say, uh, Charlie Chaplin or Elton John or, or Elvis Presley. And you, as you got closer to the picture, you saw the picture was made up of all of these smaller pictures of Elvis Presley or whatever. And as you pulled back, they all somehow connected to make this larger picture. And so that's what it was. The effect was to me. As this little boy, I saw these pictures inside of pictures inside of pictures. And that was the effect that they were all part and parcel of this much larger picture, but that they weren't specific in themselves. Each one of them was a piece or a note in a symphony. And the information that was coming to me was actually between the lines, was inside, somehow downloading between them. And here's another stupid, funny little thing as a little boy. During that time, I remember as a seven-year-old learning penmanship and, of course, writing in cursive handwriting. Kids don't do that today, but in cursive handwriting. And I was angry. I remember being angry with these entities because these images were going from right 
to left. And of course, I write English, which is left to right. And I kept thinking, they're doing it wrong. They're wrong. They're dumb. And um, I can't help but believe it was somehow in part and parcel a way to keep my conscious mind busy as the subconscious mind was having all this information downloaded into me. That was the feeling that I got. And, um, and so this is, this is the occasion that started and caused all the trouble within me and the one that I lied about all my life. Many things have happened since then, but, um, but this is where the movie begins. Now the film, when you actually see it and your audience sees it, they're going to notice two very large differences between my film and other documentaries. I'm sure your audience has seen thousands of them. And usually they're made by very, very smart people, a lot smarter than me, who are in-depth investigators and have done so much research and they know all the dates and times of crashes and everything. Okay. So when you leave that video and you watch their video, your head is filled with information, but your heart feels nothing. All it's done is it's educated you. The second thing you'll notice is that most of these investigators, they're not filmmakers. So they haven't made a movie, really. They've made something with two guys named Larry and a camera. And this is the way it looks. And it's kind of stilted and just clips. And then you hear Walter Winchell in the background, you know, back in 1947. You know, that's what you get. Okay. But in my film, because this is what I do, it's more of cinema. So here's the deal. You, as the viewer, are plunged inside the experience. You are with me from the very first frame. You experience the abduction along with me. This is why some people react so emotionally to it, because it awakens in them similar feelings, and it becomes very visceral. And so the film is emotional. And what I mean by emotional is it is the darkest and it is also the lightest. You know, this film does not assume anything. It accepts the world as it is. Now, I'm not talking about people like yourself or most of your most of your audience. But you know that most of the world is ignorant. And I don't mean that in a pejorative. I'm talking about they just don't understand or they don't have the information. They're ignorant. And when you're in the void like that, your mind takes off, your imagination takes off, and you can think the worst things. So literally being ignorant makes you fearful because you don't know what's in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so my film doesn't talk down to people. What it does is it accepts the world as it is. It says, you know, so many people come at this and they're very elevated and they want to look down and, oh, you need to be four-dimensional. And I don't do that. What I do is I say, look, I suffered from that fear. It was debilitating. It crucified me. I need to tell you this. So if this is where you are, you can come along for this ride. And then what the film does is it shepherds people through that midnight of the soul because you see me going through that midnight of the soul. And you see all of these other people with similar but not so similar events happening and how they dealt with it and how they thought they were very, very positive. Whereas it took a long time for me to understand that. And then it shepherds them through to the other side where there is some sense of understanding. Now, look, I don't 
I get a lot of <laughs> I get a lot of criticism. Oh, Mr. Answer Man, you're going to tell me the answers. I say no, you don't understand. What it is is me searching for the answers and allowing myself to look like the fool when I go down the wrong path. My I film Alien, Alien Abduction Answers is not so much about the shiny lights in the sky as it's about you and me and us, our species, our consciousness, our souls. And I'll tell you one very, very practical reason, Augie, is this. When those lights blink out, and they invariably do, they invariably do, the only people that are around are us. So we, as friends, as colleagues, as brothers, as sisters, as a species, as women and men, we have to make a decision on how we're going to deal with this. Are we going to ignore it? Okay, that's valid. Might be, not be very successful. We can be afraid. That's a choice. We can fight. That's a choice. We can engage. That's a choice. We can try to understand. That's a choice. But we together as a species have got to come to some sort of terms with this. And that's what I posit at the end of my film is, as I say, I can look at these things now with, with trepidation maybe, with caution. But I don't have to be afraid. And the one thing that is absolutely paramount is these things cannot be ignored. They must be dealt with. Yep. If we are if we are who we say we are, if we are a sentient being, if we are a thinking person, if we are somebody who is understanding our world around, not with a dispelling heart, not with a debunking heart, but with a critical mind. One that doesn't put up false barricades, but one who asks solid questions yep. and gets solid answers and takes the evidence at face value. Because sometimes the answer is, I don't know. And that's going to have to be okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I think also that by watching a video like this, each individual will have a different view of it and get different answers that will be more appropriate to them. And it just might wake you up to something that happened in your past that you now have to deal with and find solutions for yourself. Yes. Augie, yes. uh, I, I can't tell you. I have had... Um... I'm sure you're familiar with this this phrase. Twas the best of times, twas the worst of times. Yeah. When I um when I released the film, you know, making a movie is a big deal. It's a hard thing to do. Getting it accepted internationally is a huge job. And um, I was unsure that I would be successful, but I have been successful in getting it released internationally. I'm very excited about that. Mm -hmm. And um, but. I had lied about this my entire life. So when I realized it was going to be international, I had to have the talk with yeah. my dear wife and my children. This was a difficult thing. Uh, because, you know, they went the whole gamut of, you know, anger and denial. And my wife felt a little betrayed. I mean, we've been married for over 30 plus years. What do you mean you've never mentioned this? So it, it's just a complicated thing. It's hard. So I was at a wedding uh, right, right around the holidays, and there were people who I've known my entire life walk right up beside me, talk past me, walk right by, would not recognize me, would not talk to me, would not engage with me because of this film. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the, okay. other here, here's the other side of the coin. 
people who I barely know. Hey, John, do you mind if I talk to you for a little bit? Mm -hmm. I, uh, I heard that, and I was completely surprised by that, too. I went, you? I've had those. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? So so really is, it really is the best of times and the worst of times. Um, coming out with this has not been, <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you that no one at Sony Pictures has approached me to be their CEO. Uh, no. <laughs> no, this is not a resume builder. <laughs> Nobody is asking me to sign anything. Yeah. But it, it was one of those things that I had to do for myself. And uh, because of yeah, because of it, it's opened up all kinds of things in me. And and and, yeah, and by watching uh, it, it opens up things for other people too. There is yes, there's on one more thing that I want to mention here. I think we got about eleven minutes left, and that is that when we think about the word abduction, it's usually in a mm. negative connotation, but there are positive encounters I, I don't want to use the word abductions anymore because sometimes the ship lands and someone comes out and invites them on board to take a ride yeah now, that's not really an abduction that more like a joy ride now yeah. you have you heard about those and uh, what can you say about the things that when they were on the ship, maybe they got oh. cured from an ailment that they had. Yeah. So there are yeah. good things happening out of these things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Agi. And this is this is why I said earlier, we have to accept the the evidence as it is. We can't change it for our own narrative. We have to just say what is what is. And you are absolutely correct. So in the film, even though I've told you this kind of scary story. The truth is that there are six other people in the in the film who are all talking about experiences, and some of them are very much what you just said, that a ship landed, that they did travel, that they had wonderful experiences. Um, there have been also, there are a couple of stories about people who have passed from total terror because they didn't understand what was going on to participation, and now, and now uh, enjoy the experiences and literally participate. In fact, they don't want to be called abductees they want to be called experiencers because yeah. they or contactees and they literally have a relationship with these entities that they are interacting with and what i have to say about that is i think a lot of this is communication so let's just take something i you know i'm not a very smart guy so i always tell little stories to help me understand things right that's why i'm a filmmaker i tell little stories so here's a little story we as a species i'll tell you something that we can all relate with you know we have scientists that go out into the wilderness and if we find a species what we come down and we tag it and we put a little clip in its ear and we track its migration because we want to protect the species. We want to make sure that it doesn't go extinct. We want to make sure that it has good grounds to feed and migrate to and all this other stuff. Okay. Now, if that elk or whatever could tell the story, would the story have been, oh, yeah, these really nice fellas came out of a Black Hawk helicopter and we had a nice conversation and they tagged my ear and now we're buddies? No, it would probably say, holy crap. These guys came out of nowhere. I didn't I didn't see where they came. I didn't they don't look like elk to me and they jumped on me and they put something in my ear. I can't get it out and I feel this buzzing in my head all the time. And okay, 
Meanwhile, the intentions were completely good and you had, you know, a misunderstanding. Each one of us, each one of us, I don't care who you are on this planet. I don't care what kind of relationship you have with your God or what culture you have. Every one of us was born, right? All of us were born. And that's a pretty shocking thing. Whether you're a cesarean or you come out the vagina, you are smacked and you are wicked. This is a moment of terror and disorientation and everything else. Now, look, is there anything evil about that at all? No, not at all. But to you, you experience this as completely an ontological shock and you lose your mind at that moment. You need to be comforted. And so what really my endeavor has been is this, is to take people where they are, that ontological shock, like what the heck is going on here? Maybe some people are prepared, like you said. There are also people in the film, you know, you talk about, well, they you know, were invited on the ship. There are people in the film that talk about how they were made some sort of agreement prior to even their incarnation on this planet to participate in these things. So this is what I want to share with you. In this film, regardless if people like me or they don't like me, it doesn't matter. When they watch the film, even my harshest critics say this. I watched it, I could rate 100% to it because I could see myself or I could see my uncle or the man who owns the shop down the street or mom or dad or the painter or the, you know, whatever. Because these are real people who have yep. had something so incredible happen to them. And literally, this is why I say the movie's about us, because it's about how we adjust and how we understand that communication and how we eventually have an opportunity to reply. You know, here's a, st a stupid little story to finish this off. Augie, okay. you and I walk into a dark room, right? We walk into a dark room and we see a figure up against the wall. Ah! Intruder, you turn on the light. Huh. Do you see that's your jacket hung over a chair? Okay. Okay, we've had a little laugh. We were a little shocked. Our blood pressure went up. But now we know something. It still was scary. Okay, fine. But what are we going to do about it? We have a choice. Hey, I'm never going in that room again. Well, that's not a very grown-up choice, right? Yeah. Here's another choice. Hey, I'm going to hang that jacket up where it belongs. Or number three, guess what? I'm never going to be afraid again. All of these are choices after you know the facts. But if you feed yourself disinformation, you will constantly make the wrong choice. Mm -hmm. And so we must take the information in. We must absorb it all. Yeah. I got yeah. a comment on the, uh, you said you were taken underground. Correct. And there's probably one or two or maybe possibly three people out there that is listening to this and they said, yeah, sure, aliens underground. Mm -hmm. No, don't they come from up there? Well, yeah, they do, but they're also underground. There are caverns. And in fact, I have a personal 45-second uh, story I want to tell you on that one because decades ago when I was in Greencastle, Indiana, teaching flying, I got a good friend. He was a, an airline captain for Allegheny Airlines at that time. And he flew a lot of, of uh, charter flights from the United States into the Caribbean. And he told me that when he was flying over the water, sometimes it was no moon out and it was dark. 
there is one spot in the Caribbean where there is big globs of light under the water mm. on the bottom of the sea. And there's a string of light going between, I think he said two or three big globs, kind of like small cities underneath the water in the Caribbean with a mm. string of light attaching them. And he says, I don't know what those are, but we talked about UFOs a little bit, and I think he got an idea. That is not us down there. <laughs> that is someone that maybe have been here longer than we have, or they come from out there or somewhere mm -hmm. interdimensionally. Mm -hmm. But they also are in caverns under the ground because the Native Americans talk about it. They talk about mm -hmm. the ant people. They talk about others that coming out from under the ground, out of the caverns, and they teach them stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I have no problem with that story whatsoever because there is evidence that there's something down below that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. That's my story. I ran over the 45 yeah. seconds. That's okay. How, mu how much time do we have, Augie? Uh, we got three minutes left. <laughs> well, well, let me just say this to people who, who, who plant their flag on, you know, what these are, what those are. A lot of people will say, these are just, you said, ant people, boom. And then somebody says, ah, oh, these are people are from the Pallades or these people are, you know, from Saturn or whatever. Okay. This is what I say. Once again, I tell little stories in my film. I do this little story. Think about this. Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. Everybody knows this. So let's say he's successful. Okay, the craft lands on Mars. Out comes somebody from Norway, somebody from Kenya, somebody from New Zealand, somebody from China. Okay, they all come out and a little Martian guy comes out and he goes, hey, who's the earthling? Well, well wait a minute. We, we're all earthlings. But think about this. All of us look a lot different because of our socioeconomic uh, because of all of our biology, because of our diets, because of all of these things, our evolution. But we're all from the same planet. Now watch this. On top of that, each one of us might have a different agenda. Maybe one is a military commander. Maybe one is an industrialist. Maybe one is an investor. Maybe one is just there for a field trip. Okay, now watch this. All of that, all of those different looking char characters and all of those different agendas from one ship and one planet. Yeah. Think about the universe. How many different sources of life are there? If it's prolific, there's no way that we know everything. This is why I say, listen, before I condemn somebody else's story, I should listen to it all. Yeah. I should really digest it. And that's what I hope this film does. It touches people and it allows them for the first time in their life to talk about it. Yeah. Where can they get a hold of you and where can they see your movie? Sure. sure. The film is called Alien Abduction Answers. In the United States, it's playing on Amazon Prime, on Kino, on Video On Demand, on Google Play, on YouTube, on Roku, the whole bit. Internationally, right this second, you could go to kgraradio.com uh, and you could stream it. Um, also, it's being released all throughout England and New Zealand and Australia uh, this autumn, and then it will be worldwide this autumn uh, on all the streaming. It'll be via A&E networks overseas. 
But right this second, anybody could stream it right now. They can find me, John Yost, Y-O-S-T, on Facebook, on uh, on Twitter. I, I'm, I'm active there as well. Or they can just email me. My company is called rhinopictures.com. And, um, and I'm working on the next film called Alien Abduction Awakening. Because after you know something is happening, now it's time to integrate the information and you start to awaken. And that's what the next film's about. That's good. Wonderful. Gosh, I enjoyed this talk, John. I really Thank did. you, sir. I enjoy you, sir. Thank you. No, because one big reason that uh, I think this is different than many other abduction stories is that, yeah, you can explain what happened, but you also explain what happened up here that we can relate to. Yes, sir. The yes, solutions, sir. if we look within ourselves, we can find those solutions. And then you talk about them on your uh, on your movie. And I'm looking at your TV screen behind you. And that's the picture, isn't it? Uh, that's the poster. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. That is. So that's what yeah. you look for when you go to Amazon and different places. You find that picture. You got it. That's us. Yeah. I All thank right. you so much. And I, and I hope the film helps somebody. That's really what the hope is. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, brother. Thank you now.